Hello, my crazy, maniacal friends. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. Believe me, this maniac appreciates it very much. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Tornado. I have a death wish. I'm a 75-year-old man, and I have bone cancer. The doctors have given me three months to live. They say I have a chance to live longer if I do chemotherapy, but I'm not interested in the side effects. I already live in constant, crippling pain. If chemo doesn't work, it'll probably just add fatigue, nausea, and kidney issues to the equation. One of the few things I do still have is a full head of hair. I could likely kiss that goodbye as well. And what if it did work? What, I got a few more years of life before I catch some other disease? Or worse yet, just lose my mind and become a stranger to those who know me best? No thanks. My wife died last year. I have no life without her. And let's all face the facts. I'm on the final decline. There's no going back up the hill. The best I can hope for is that I die before I get too far down it. I would just let the bone cancer eat me away, but the pain is unbearable. I can't get through a day without hefty doses of painkillers. If I were a dog, my owners would show compassion and put me down knowing that I'll only get worse and suffer more. But I'm not a dog. Unfortunately, I'm human, and no one is allowed to put me down without risking life in prison if they happen to be caught providing me with such an act of kindness. In this day and age, a bunch of fat cat politicians get to decide whether or not to grant permission for terminally ill folks like myself to be put out of their misery. Permission. To me. A 75-year-old grown man. Ridiculous. Those heartless bastards would rather me suffer every single day of my life and force my loved ones to watch me as I wither away in agony. I don't want my children to witness my brain turning to mush while I lie in a puddle of my own piss because I've lost control of all my faculties. I refuse. 
Two days from now is the one-year anniversary of my wife's demise. Thankfully, she went suddenly in her sleep. No pain. No misery. I plan on holding out until then. On that day, I'll take matters into my own hands and put a gun in my mouth. I was sitting on my front porch in a rocking chair when the storm began. The newsman said there was a possibility of strong storms. That was an understatement. The winds picked up something fierce, gusting in from the southwest, roaring through the trees and tossing around any debris that wasn't weighted down. And then the rain began. It was deafening, pounding on the street like a million tiny sledgehammers. I watched as my neighbor pulled haphazardly into his driveway, no doubt due to his vision being obstructed by the sheets of rain cascading down his windshield faster than his wipers could push it aside. As he exited his vehicle and raced to the shelter of his home, he yelled out in pain as blades of rain slapped down upon him like a thousand needles. The hail was enormous, like giant softballs. They crashed to the earth with sickening thuds like one might imagine a storm of watermelons to sound. A myriad of glass breaking overtook the sound of the storm as hail erupted through the windshields of the cars in the neighborhood that were not garaged. In the distance I could hear the ruckus approaching. It sounded like 50 men throwing metal trash cans against a building all at once. A blinding flash of lightning revealed the menace in the distance. A wedge-shaped funnel cloud. And then pure darkness until the next illumination of lightning. The tornado was closing in quickly. I could barely hear the scream of tornado sirens over the pounding of hail, flood of rain, and the cacophony of horror emerging from within the tornado. Across the street was a thin line of forest that separated my house from a restaurant and a gas station. Being that it was December, the leaves of the tree that normally shielded the view of the buildings had long since been shed, allowing me to watch the funnel cloud as it raged toward them. That's when I heard the roar. The roar didn't sound like that of a freight train or a jet engine. It sounded like a beast. Lightning flashed, allowing me to see the tornado just before it made impact with the restaurant. And then all went dark. But through the rain, hail, and blackness of the storm, I could see two red glowing objects racing toward the restaurant. Lightning flashed again, and I could see that the red glowing objects were shining like eyes from within the tornado. Lightning blazed through the sky just as the funnel cloud impacted the restaurant. The roof of the establishment was ripped off and flung into the distance like a frisbee. I watched on in terror, and I swore that I saw a long, thick, claw emerge from the tornado, grasp the restaurant, and fling it into the sky. I then witnessed a muscular black hairy arm reach out of the funnel cloud. 
The gigantic fist at the end of the arm pounded down on the gas station until it was flattened to the ground. And then the tornado made its way for me. I could hear thudding footsteps that shook the earth as it approached. The red eyes in the center of the twister were shining bright, and I realized that they were attached to a horrific, beastly head which emerged from the tempest. Its jaws were snapping open and closed like an evil tractor excavator as it chewed through the trees and emerged onto my street. I began to wonder if all tornadoes had monsters lurking inside of them. Or was this one unique? By now, all of my neighbors were huddled in their closets, bathtubs, or basements. I was alone to witness the monster within the tornado. I was afraid, but not of the monster. I was afraid it might change course and spare me. I couldn't let that happen. I used every ounce I had to shimmy up the electricity pole next to my house and climb onto my roof. The wind from the monstrous tornado was trying to hurl me, but I kept my balance and rushed to the edge of the roof and screamed out. I'm right here! If you want me, come and get me! I held out my arms wide as if hoping to embrace the tornado. The monster locked its nefarious glowing eyes on me, and the funnel cloud rampaged toward me and then came to a sudden standstill. Hail, rain, and debris from the twister were pelting me, but I didn't care. I was ready to meet my end. The monster in the tornado stuck its ugly head out of the safety of the funnel cloud and stared at me. It appeared confused by my defiance. Apparently it was used to people running from it in fear. Confusion quickly turned to fury as the monster's brawny claw wrapped around me and lifted me high into the air, holding me eye-level with it. I could see the ire within the monster's enraged eyes. Its hairy face crinkled in anger, and its evil eyes grew brighter. It let forth with a thundering roar. It wanted me dead and I wanted it to kill me. I could feel my disease-riddled bones beginning to crack as the monster started to squeeze the life from me. I was seconds away from death. My suffering was about to end. This made me happy, and I made a mistake. I smiled. My jovial smile infuriated the monster even more, and rather than finish the job by crushing me, it hurled me through the air like a rag doll. Two days later, on the anniversary of my wife's death, I woke up in the hospital. I was battered and bruised. I had multiple gashes all over my body, and my hip was shattered. Unfortunately, I was still alive. A beautiful nurse stood before me. She explained the extent of my injuries and informed me that they were going to take me into surgery for a hip replacement. No! No! She tried to calm me down and told me this was necessary or I would never walk again. 
She didn't understand, so I took her hand and pulled her close to me. I have bone cancer. I'll be dead in three months at the latest. I'm in enough pain as it is. Just let me die. I could see the empathy in her eyes as she listened to my words and understood what I was going through. She held my hand and seemed sincere when she asked me if there was anything she could do to help me. So I told her, If you really want to do something for me, put me out of my misery. The nurse patted my hand and showed me a compassionate smile before exiting the room. A few minutes later, she returned holding a syringe and quietly shut the door behind her. Finally, a merciful soul. She approached my bed and administered the injection. She was able to do what the monster within the tornado could not. End my suffering. The Disembodied Voice My folks bought a new house three months ago and all was going swimmingly. The house was a large Dutch colonial. It had an attic that I turned into my bedroom. It was nice because I had my own floor, and the further away I could be from my annoying 13-year-old sister, the better. The new house wasn't too far from where we previously lived. I was just further out of town and more private. I was still in the same school district, so I didn't have to change schools, which would have been a bummer. And I recently turned 16 and got my driver's license, so I could drive myself to school and didn't have to deal with a new bus route. For no good reason, my girlfriend Tina was scared of the house. She didn't like to come over. She said every time she stepped into the house, she got an uneasy feeling. I thought the whole thing was kind of silly, but I got along with her family and didn't mind going to her house more often. My classmates all insisted that the house we bought was haunted, although none of them experienced anything for themselves. My best friend Roland swore that a boy once hung himself in the attic. He couldn't tell me who or when, but he heard about it somewhere and took it as gospel. It was all hearsay, and I didn't think there was any truth to the rumors because we had been living there for three months and nothing unusual had occurred. Yet. It was early on in our third month of living there when things started to happen. My dad was a foreman at a local factory. He came home late from work one night and was griping about his new supervisor. I was in the living room in the front of the house, but could hear him complaining to my mother in the kitchen. As my dad continued his rant, I heard what sounded like someone letting out a deep breath. 
It came from the other side of the living room. I would have thought it to be my bratty sister, but she was sitting next to me. I asked her if she heard that, and she said, I thought that was you. A week later, my mother was in a tizzy because she was about to leave for the grocery store, but had misplaced her shopping list. She was carrying on and stomping around the house as she looked for it. I was on the second floor heading toward my room. When I opened up the door to my bedroom attic, I was met by a hot gust of air. Then I heard a muddled, raspy voice coming from the top of the attic stairs. I thought it was my sister fooling around. I dashed up the stairs already yelling at her to get out of my room, only to find no sign of anyone. Not long after that, I was lying in my bed and can hear my sister moaning about something down in her bedroom. I wasn't quite sure what her problem was. It sounded like it was some kind of issue with her wardrobe. As she squawked, I heard the voice again. It was very deep, and it strung together a few unintelligible words. There was no doubt that the voice came from somewhere in my room. I checked the closet under the bed. I even checked in the cedar chest I kept extra blankets in. There was nobody there. I told Tina and Roland about the strange happenings. This just reaffirmed Tina's stance as she said, See, I told you there was something off about that house. After hearing my story, Roland brought up an interesting point. He mentioned that every time the disembodied voice manifested, someone was complaining about something. He suggested that whatever the voice was, it fed off of negative energy. With that theory in mind, I kept extra focus on the emotions my family was emitting in the house, and if that seemed to trigger the voice. And oddly enough, there seemed to be some truth behind it. I never ever heard the voice when people were happy or even in satisfactory moods. But when someone was having a bad day, somewhere, I'd hear a deep whisper or voice. I could never make out what was being said, but I could hear it. It was there. There was one time when everyone seemed to be in a pleasant mood, and I heard subtle whispering coming from across the house. That was the only time I heard it when there didn't seem to be anything wrong. So in that instance, I questioned everyone in the house. I asked them all if everything was okay and if they had a good day. My mom confessed that she had some car trouble on the way home and was worried that it might be the transmission, which would be a major repair. So once again, even though it wasn't obvious, there was a negative energy within the house when the voice manifested. Even though it was spooky, I was kind of excited to tell Roland that I thought I had proven his theory correct. Roland was a bit of a science geek and often spent his free period messing around in the science labs. When I entered the lab to tell him the results of my little experiment, my heart dropped. It was Roland and Tina. They were kissing. I wasn't aware that I let out an audible gasp, but I obviously did because they broke off their kiss and turned to me in shock. I stared daggers at both of them and then stormed out of the lab in disgust. 
Tina came running after me. I didn't want anything to do with her, but she pleaded her case anyhow. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I, I should have never done that. I stopped and snapped at her. At the very least, you should have broken up with me before you did it. Now get away from me, you filthy whore, before I catch a disease. She started crying and ran off. I was in the parking lot heading toward my car when Roland caught up with me, apologizing profusely. Man, I'm so sorry. I'm a horrible friend. I, I should never have done that. I, I let my Johnson make that decision for me. It was a mistake. I punched him before he could say anything else. When I got home, I was steaming. I raced upstairs to my attic bedroom, laid down in bed, and tried to calm myself by putting headphones on and listening to some music. But instead of music, I heard the disembodied voice echoing through my headphones. And I heard it with clarity. Kill them both. The temperature in my room got extremely hot and humid. I was dripping with sweat. Kill them both. Images began to flood in my mind of me taking my dad's shotgun to school the next day. I could perfectly envision Tina's head blowing apart as I pulled the trigger and smashing Roland's face to smithereens with the butt of the gun. Kill them both. It would be so easy. Kill. Them. Both. I ripped the headphones off my head and jumped from my bed. What the hell was I thinking? I started to run down the stairs, but felt like I was stepping through wet concrete. I was weighted down by the hate and by... the voice. Kill them both. It was feasting upon my negative energy. I felt like a serpent was inside my skull, wrapping itself around my brain, warping my mind into a mass of evil matter. If you won't kill them, kill yourself. I gritted my teeth, clenched my fists, and shouted, No! No! I, I won't do it! I, I won't do it! All at once the heat and humidity vanished from the air. My legs suddenly felt weightless and I raced down the stairs. As I bolted from the house and collapsed in the front yard, I could feel the evil serpent unravel from my brain and the malevolence was evicted from my mind. I never stepped foot in that house again. Signal. I work for a private company known as Cybrantech. We monitor electromagnetic waves in outer space in hopes of finding proof of alien civilizations on another world. The proof we are hoping to find would come in the form of a radio transmission from another planet. While we run into interesting signals often, they are usually one-offs, meaning they do not repeat. It is believed that a true alien transmission would be repetitive. For example, 
If an alien world used the same technology and aimed their search at Earth, they would find a planet abuzz with electromagnetic activity. Three months ago, we found such a signal from a planet that orbits a sun that is approximately 97 light years from Earth. We quickly figured out that this wasn't simply a transmission confined to the planet. It was an outbound message that we determined to be directed at our planet. The transmission was clearly that of an incredibly advanced civilization, and we found deciphering the message to be amazingly difficult, if not impossible. For the past two months, I had been working day and night on a software that could hopefully crack the code and give us an idea of what exactly was being communicated through the alien transmission. The software has been far more successful than I ever expected it to be. It was quick to conclude that the transmission was not in fact aimed at our planet, as we initially suspected. Instead, the transmission was directed at something just behind the moon. After concluding where the transmission was going, the software began breaking down the message within the transmission. It was an incredibly slow process, akin to reading a sentence by obtaining half a letter each day. Fortunately, as time went by, the sequence of decoding the message accelerated. It turns out that the message is relatively short, and although indescribably complex, the elaborate software had assured me that it could in fact decipher the message. At first, I thought the software was experiencing a glitch, because it would move along smoothly for long periods, and then tend to lag as if buffering. Later, I found out that was simply due to a continuance within the message. As it turns out, the transmission consisted of a very short message followed by a strange repeating pattern. It was the repeating pattern that the software was having so much trouble with, but still, it was making subtle progress every day. Today, the software went crazy. It started flashing, and an alarm began to go off. I had designed it to do so when it successfully deciphered the message. I couldn't believe it. I never truly believed it could crack the code of the alien message. I was really just hoping for further confirmation that this was indeed alien technology, and to perhaps get a slight understanding of what the transmission consisted of. A pure, successful deciphering of the transmission was not quite what I expected, but I was dancing with excitement when I realized that I was about to be the first person on Earth to ever read a message from another planet. It turns out the message was being delivered to some kind of craft that was hiding in the shadow of the moon. The message read, Prepare to destroy the planet. The portion of the message that the software had such a difficult time translating was the repetitive code being sent after the message. A countdown. A countdown to the destruction of our planet. I looked closely to see how much time Earth had before it ceased to exist, and my blood ran cold. Three, 
two, one. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Island. Legend has it that there is a small, mysterious island in the South Pacific that is home to possible humanoid beasts. Some claim the island was once a location for human-animal hybrid experimentation during World War II. Others say the island is a remnant of prehistoric times that is inhabited by creatures believed to be extinct for millions of years. Some believe it to be a relic of the lost city of Atlantis. Satellite imagery does not show evidence of the island's existence. Some say that is due to the island being other-dimensional and not visible to the naked eye at all times. Others believe that the satellite imagery shows signs of the satellite images having been manipulated with the enigmatic island having been scrubbed from the photos. While nobody has hard evidence that the island exists, there are some people who claim to have been on the island. These are their stories. Plane Crash I was alone flying a private plane en route to Japan when I experienced catastrophic engine trouble. I thought I was a goner. If I didn't die in the crash, I would drown in the ocean as I was in the middle of nowhere. I was able to control the plane well enough to keep the impact minimal. The plane was destroyed and sunk immediately. I was alive, but with no flotation device, it would have been only a matter of time before I succumbed to fatigue and drowned. Then I saw the island. It was in the distance, like a guardian angel beckoning to me. I don't know how long it took me to swim there, it felt like forever, but I made it. It was a small island that I had never noticed before, even though I had flown over the region countless times. The island was beautiful, white sandy beaches backed up to a lush jungle. I was very fortunate to find a freshwater stream not too deep into the jungle. Finding a water source is the most important aspect of surviving on a deserted island. I'm very good with my hands, and the jungle proved to be extremely resourceful. I immediately went to work on building a raft. I was able to start a large fire and spent my nights on the beach away from the jungle. The jungle was abundant with life. Birds, insects, and other wildlife could constantly be heard. If there were any predators on the island, they'd probably come out at night and roam the jungle. Sometimes late at night, when I was lying on the beach staring at the stars, I would hear a distant, 
bellowing roar. I didn't know what type of creature was making such a chilling sound, and I didn't want to know. What I did know was the longer I stayed on the island, the more likely I'd encounter whatever it was, so I doubled my efforts. On the third day, I had constructed a suitable raft and paddle, and it was this day that I had the most terrifying of encounters on the island. I was tying the last of the logs to my raft with a thick vine when I heard deep, guttural growls from just inside the jungle barrier. It couldn't have been more than 100 feet away from me. Whatever it was, I could hear it moving. Twigs were snapping and I could hear large swaths of jungle being pushed aside with relative ease. Whatever this thing was, it was large, heavy, and I didn't want any part of it. I pushed my raft into the ocean and the tide took me out to sea. It was just before dusk when a cargo ship spotted me. Out of nowhere. I wasn't looking for the island, but I found it. It appeared out of nowhere. It was a foggy day. I was sailing my boat much further out than I normally do, and all at once the fog lifted and the mysterious island was right there in front of me. It was like a dream. The gorgeous tropical island looked like a postcard with clear blue water surrounding the sun-bleached sand. And the density of the surrounding jungle was breathtaking. I had to stop and investigate. The first thing that was evident to me was that there was no sign of human life. I found that surprising because the beauty of this island was off the charts. Why some billionaire never snatched this up for their own private isle was beyond me. As I walked up the white sandy beach, I noticed some tracks in the sand near the jungle. The sand was too fine and dry for the track to hold form, but I could tell two things. It wasn't human, and it was big. Having seen that, I probably shouldn't have pressed my luck, but I carelessly decided to venture into the jungle. It was probably fortunate for me that I didn't get very far into the jungle before I spotted another track in a muddy spot. I bent down and inspected it. The, the print was gigantic. My first thought was it was a bear, but a bear in the jungle didn't sound right to me. My second thought was that this was the track of a large cat. All of a sudden, the jungle sounded like it was being ripped apart as something not far away was tearing through the brush toward me. As I turned to run, I tripped and fell, just like people do in horror movies that I make fun of for being unrealistic. I kept thinking of how ironic it was going to be that I was actually going to die because I tripped and fell, allowing just enough time for the monster in the woods to catch me. As I fought to regain my footing, the sound behind me transformed into a coarse, scraping sound. My impression was that something big was rubbing against a tree. I could hear the leaves in the trees above me begin to shake with vigor. I looked up and realized that whatever this creature was, it just climbed up a nearby tree and was shaking various limbs, perhaps as a warning for me to vacate the premises. Well, the warning wasn't necessary. I raised myself up and bolted out of the jungle, down the beach, and to my boat. As I sailed away into the safety of the ocean, I couldn't help but think about the print that I found in the mud that I thought was that of a large cat. 
But although big cats can climb trees, they don't grab tree limbs and shake them. Wild Animals I was doing a little pleasure cruising on my boat when I received a distress call on my radio. Turns out a fellow boater had run out of gas and was stranded on the ocean. Lucky for them, I had spare fuel on my boat. I got their coordinates and was able to find them and gas them up enough for them to get back to the mainland. My rescue mission had taken me to a location I had never been to before. I boated around the area and found the island. I had never heard that there was some enigmatic island in the region. I was curious by my discovery and happened to feel a little adventurous, so I decided to take a look around. I ventured off the beach and followed a small animal trail until I found myself deep within the mighty jungle. It was a dense jungle and I likely would have turned back, but I thought I heard the distant churning of a waterfall. I was determined to follow the sound and witness what I could only imagine would be a breathtaking sight. The problem was, a fence was blocking my way. That's right, a fence. A thick gauge chain link fence that had to be at least 15 feet tall and was topped with barbed wire. I was quite intrigued as to how such a fence found itself so deep within the jungle on what appeared to be a deserted island. So I followed the fence. I must have followed it for two miles. I didn't find the end of it, but I did find a section of fencing that was turned up at the bottom. I was able to crawl under it with plenty of room to spare. As I trekked on, in the distance I could see a concrete structure. A building. A large concrete building in the middle of the jungle. I couldn't believe it. I was too far away to make out much in the way of detail, but was resolved to get closer and inspect it. That's when I noticed the thick, deep claw marks penetrating a nearby tree. And I could smell urine. I mean, there was no mistaking it was urine, but I kid you not when I say that it had a buttered popcorn scent to it. Then I heard a spine-tingling growl just up ahead of me. In hindsight, uh, it probably wasn't the wisest decision to turn and flee, but that's exactly what I did. I ran. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a fast runner, but I felt like I may have broken a world record by how rapid I was zooming through the forest. Unfortunately, whatever that thing was that growled at me was giving chase. I could hear it bursting through the brush behind me, and it was gaining ground. I was so lucky that I was able to reach the fence before it caught me. I scurried under the opening and then raced along the fence in hopes of luring the beast away from the opening under that fence. It worked. In no time the creature was by my side and crashed into the fence in an attempt to attack me. I fell down, looked up at the fence, and found myself eye to eye with a tiger. A tiger. An honest-to-goodness tiger. If the fence weren't there, I would have been mauled to death, no doubt. Even though the fence kept me safe from the tiger, I found myself screaming as I raced through the remainder of the jungle to my boat. The Creature I was actively searching for the island. I had been for years, but to no avail. If the island really did exist, 
I had a rough idea as to the general vicinity based on the suspected manipulation in the satellite photos. But even with a basic idea of where it was, it seemed impossible to find. Yes, I did entertain the thought that the island didn't really exist, but my stubbornness coupled with enjoying the search kept me at it and my perseverance finally paid off. I let out a cheer when I saw it. How it took me so long to finally discover the island, I could never figure out, but I didn't care. The island was real, and I found it. My fear was that it would just be another deserted island with nothing unusual about it at all. Those fears were instantly wiped clean the moment I discovered the fence. It was so out of place in the middle of the jungle. And why was it there? It had to be surrounding something. I walked down the fence line for what felt like the entire length of the island and was pleasantly surprised when I happened upon a gate. There was a chain on the gate and a lock, but it hung loose, unfastened. I pushed the gate open and found myself on a thin path. The path led to a magnificent sight. A concrete monolith emerging from the depths of the jungle. The building was enormous and seemed to break off into individual sections. Some of those sections were overrun by the jungle, but other sections were clean. Clearly, someone, or something, was maintaining it. I stepped to the building and entered through a door that was propped open by the growth of heavy vines. I found myself in an endless concrete corridor. The walls were thick with condensation. The musty scent of mold was almost overwhelming. I covered my mouth and carefully made my way down the corridor. It was black as night. Had I not brought a flashlight with me, I would not have been able to see where I was going. I passed by several steel doors. I tried to open some of them, but they were all locked, so I continued on. The corridor ended at two dust-covered metal swinging doors. I pushed my way through them and found myself in a massive room. Even being deeply embedded within the building, the jungle still managed to find breaks and cracks in the foundation and had overtaken the room. But it couldn't hide what this place once was. A vast laboratory. There were various workstations, desks, shelving units, cabinets, and equipment. And cages. Rows and rows of cages. Some small, some immense. Animals were kept here at one time, lots of animals. I could confidently conclude that they had been experimented on. A metallic crash at the far end of the room literally made me jump. I shone my flashlight in the direction of the bang. A metal door at the back of the room was kicked open and it fell to the ground. The echo of the crash was still ringing in my ears when I saw the monster standing in the doorway. At first I thought it was a man, until it bared its fangs and let out a hideous howl. Its piercing green eyes were fixed on me. Its face was striped orange and black and was surrounded by a circle of matted white hair. It slashed its ferocious claws through the air and hissed at me. This was some kind of human-tiger hybrid monster. I turned and ran out of the room and through the corridor back to the jungle. 
I was thankful that I made it back to my boat alive. I never returned to the island, or told anyone about my experience, until now. Inhabitants My name is Kurt Parrish. I live on the island. I was an American biologist and geneticist working for the United States Army when I was captured by the Japanese during World War II. I was a prisoner, but I was treated well. You see, they needed me. I was one of the leading experts in my field and they needed my assistance with their experiments. We were implanting human cells into various animal embryos. The ultimate goal was to create animals that could carry human organs that would be used for transplants. We had been making great strides faster than any of us had imagined, but the end of the war brought an immediate end to the life of the project. The Japanese vacated the facility in a panic, fearing the worst if the island were discovered by the Americans. There was serious concern on my part that I would be eliminated so as not to share any of the research we had been doing. Amidst the chaos of the evacuation, I was able to hide in one of the underground bunkers. In less than a day, every person in the facility had evacuated, and I was the only human on the island. I spent the first two days scheming as to how I could alert the Americans to my presence and get rescued from the island, when I realized that I did not want to be rescued. I did not want to leave. This was my own private paradise and I didn't want to be anywhere else. I immediately released all of the animals in the lab. Rats, rabbits, pigs, and apes thrive on the island to this day. The apes are fantastic security. On the rare occasions that someone finds the island and decides to investigate, the apes will often climb trees and shake branches. It scares the hell out of everyone. There were several tiger cubs that were caged in the lab that I released and raised. Their lineage continues and they are self-sufficient. They won't hesitate to kill anyone who breaches the security of the fence. They must have been on the other side of the island the day that someone actually made it all the way to the building and began snooping around. When I saw that the intruder was heading for the abandoned laboratory, I took matters into my own hands. I had pre-made a tiger mask and rubber claws just in case such a scenario occurred. When I kicked the metal doors open and presented myself to the trespasser, I actually witnessed the blood drain from his face as he turned ghostly white and then fled. I was successful in scaring him away, but do realize that his account of what happened could bring unwanted attention to the island. Hopefully not. Even if it does, the island is difficult to find. The fact is that it's a small island far away from any heavy boat traffic and it won't be found on any maps. Even though the experiments took place ages ago, the Japanese do not want to acknowledge the existence of the island and have to answer any questions as to what they used it for. 
so I'm sure they have been going to great lengths to make it challenging for anyone to find. I'm an old man now. I don't know how old exactly, but take my word for it, I'm old, and I hope to live out the rest of my days on this island in peace. If you like scary stories and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a whole slew of them, and most of them are just 99 cents. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Again, this is a great way to support the show. That's maniacontheloose.com slash books. Out of time. Russellville is a town that still holds genuine charm. People come from all over the world to visit, usually in the summer months. The amount of money most of us acquire from visitors in the summertime is enough to get us through the remainder of the year. Russellville does have a dark period of history. That's part of the allure for tourists. Back in the 1880s, Russellville had one of the largest, most well-known brothels in the state. And for those who couldn't afford the brothel, there were plenty of discount hookers walking the alleys. In 1889, three prostitutes were brutally murdered over a two-month period. They were butchered. Their abdomens had been sliced open and their intestines were placed on their shoulders. In 1888, in London, Jack the Ripper murdered at least five women in similar fashion. Most of his victims had their intestines removed and placed on their shoulders. Jack the Ripper was never apprehended. This led some people to believe that he fled to America and may have settled down in Russellville to continue his slaughter. The Russellville Ripper was never caught either. On the night the final Russellville Ripper victim was discovered, there was a fantastic lightning storm. It is said that the skies flashed bright blue as a lightning bolt struck the center of Main Street and sent an electric tremor through the entire town. I own a saloon in Russellville. It's the oldest building in town. This place started out as a saloon in 1885 and remained as such until 1915. Since then, the building changed hands several times and has wore many different hats. Over the years, it has been a boutique store, a restaurant, a tattoo parlor, a barber shop, the town museum, a cigar store, a coffee shop, and an antique store. I bought it 20 years ago and changed it back to what it was always meant to be. A saloon. I even used the same name it was back in the old days. The Wagon Wheel. I made it up to be an old-timey saloon. It has a long, ancient bar with a wide variety of spirits displayed in front of a wall-sized antique mirror. I kept the lighting dim to mimic candlelight. It makes for a cozy atmosphere. I do have some modern amenities, such as a jukebox and a television around back, but otherwise, it does maintain a vintage feel. 
the most unusual night I have ever experienced since owning the Wagon Wheel Saloon was the night the stranger arrived. It was a stormy night in early autumn. There was a loud crack of thunder and a magnificent flash of lightning just before he entered. He was tall and lean and was dressed as if he had just gotten off a train from the 1800s. He was wearing a short, narrowly fitted, black cutaway jacket that barely revealed his necktie. The cutaway portion of the jacket exposed the bottom of his vest and his watch chain. He wore dark trousers with gray stripes. His outfit was topped off with a black bowler's hat. He looked as if he was dressed to go to a costume party. I would have commented on his outdated attire, but the blood on his hands distracted me. Uh, are, are you okay? Is that blood on your hands? The man looked down at his hands and stammered for a second before collecting himself and speaking with confidence. It appears that I placed my hands onto something freshly painted. You're welcome to use the bathroom to wash up. The man seemed perplexed by my statement. Bathroom. Ah, yes, a hot bath would be nice. I didn't realize you offered this service. N no, not a bath, a bathroom. You know, with a toilet and a sink. It's just around the bar. You can wash up in there. I pointed in the direction of the bathroom and watched the stranger hold a confused expression as he hesitantly followed my directions. He was gone for quite some time. When he emerged, his hands were clean, but his eyes were wide with shock. He slowly approached the bar and held up a finger as he spoke. Good sir, this is Russellville, isn't it? I nodded. Yes, it is. The man gazed about the room and kept looking up at the lights with fascination. I thought maybe this odd fellow could use a drink, so I spoke up. Would you like something to drink? A cold beer? Whiskey, perhaps? The stranger waved me off. Thank you, but I do not partake. Well, how about a Coke? His brow crinkled with confusion. Coke. I pulled a cold can out of the icebox and gave it to him. He thanked me and began inspecting the can as if I had just handed him a Martian artifact. I watched curiously as the man began flicking at the can's tab as he tried to figure out how to open it. Just pull that tab up. He did as I instructed and startled at the popping sound of the can opening. He then spent several seconds smelling the coke through the mouth hole before finally taking a sip. His eyes lit up. It's sweet. He took another drink and rinsed it around in his mouth before swallowing. It has a sharpness to it. Finally, he took a long swig and let out a satisfied breath. This drink is quite refreshing. This is the first time you've ever had a Coke? You've got to be putting me on. Where are you from? All over. He continued to gawk around at the saloon. This establishment is extravagant. When the jukebox came to life, the stranger jumped and let out an audible gasp. He then stared at it in awe for many minutes before he carefully walked over. He inspected it closely for some time. Eventually, he returned to the bar. 
He eyed me with honesty as he asked the question. My dear chap, I do realize what I'm about to ask you may sound abnormal, but can you inform me as to what year this is? This man was dead serious, so I answered him. It's 2021. He stared back at me with a blank expression for the longest time, but his eyes were shifting back and forth. I got the impression that he was having a difficult time digesting the information I just provided him with. I watched him as he sat down heavily into a bar stool and scanned the room over and over. I heard him whispering to himself, 2021. 2021? As the music continued to play over the jukebox, an attractive lady in tight pants stood up and began dancing. I noticed that she now garnered the stranger's full attention. He watched her and looked her up and down. I witnessed a sly smirk cross over his face. Finally, the man stood up, tipped his cap at me, and exited the saloon. And with that, the mysterious stranger was gone. The following night, a woman was found slaughtered in one of the back alleys just two blocks from my saloon. Her abdomen was ripped open, and her intestines had been placed on her shoulder. The Nursing Home I'm a 72-year-old woman. Recently, I slipped and fell in the shower and broke my femur, also known as the thigh bone. It was a jagged break and required having a metal rod inserted in my leg to hold the bone together while it heals. I'm not supposed to put any weight on it for six to eight weeks. Unfortunately, my other leg was sprained in the fall as well, so moving at all was incredibly difficult. The hospital kept me for a week and then transferred me to a rehabilitation center slash nursing home. Almost all of the patients are nursing home residents, and it's not a fancy nursing home. It's basically an old hospital with two people to each room. I arrived very early on a Saturday morning they put me in room 108. As I quickly found out, the weekend staff was nothing more than a skeleton crew, so they didn't check on me very often. The woman I was sharing my room with was named Carrie. She was so thin. She looked like a skeleton with flesh. Her skin was worn and wrinkled. She had long silver hair which was stiff and matted as though it hadn't been washed in some time. When I arrived, she was asleep and she remained as such for the majority of the day. Sometimes she would mumble incoherently. On the few occasions that she had her eyes open, she stared at the wall. That afternoon, one of the patients in a wheelchair rolled herself into my room and introduced herself to me. She was a portly old woman who held a constant frown. 
she introduced herself as Maud. After chit-chatting with her for a few minutes, she leaned in close to me and whispered, Everyone who stays in this room dies. With that, she rolled herself out of the room. It was quite the welcome. The food in the nursing home was horrible. I ate what I could to give myself some energy, but the stress of being transported from one hospital to the nursing home and getting settled in had me exhausted, and I fell asleep early. In the middle of the night, I was awakened by a strange hissing noise. I opened my eyes and let out a gasp. Carrie was looming over my bed, staring at me with frosted cataract eyes. Her mouth was curled into a scowl, revealing her decaying, gray teeth. She lurched forward and moved her ragged face close to mine and hissed, I'm going to kill you. She reached her bony arms out as if she were preparing to choke me, but was distracted by footsteps coming down the hall. She gave a quick look at the doorway and then scurried back into her bed. I immediately pressed the nurse's call button and started yelling for help. It took a while for a nurse to get there. I explained to her that Carrie had threatened me. The nurse did not believe me. Carrie, she can't get out of her bed without assistance, and she hasn't spoken a coherent word in months. I think you're just tired. Let me get you something to help you sleep. I called after the nurse, but she ignored me and exited the room. I kept a watchful eye on Carrie, but she remained in her bed in a near catatonic state until I finally dozed off. When I woke up the next morning, there were two nurses assisting Carrie into a wheelchair. I told them what happened the previous night, but they didn't believe me either. One of them said, Does she look like she's a danger to anyone? They wheeled her out of the room and she was gone the majority of the day. I was in a bit of a pickle. I was freaked out by the incident with Carrie and wanted to be moved to another room. I'm a widow, but I have a son and a daughter. They'd both visit me regularly, and if either of them were here, they would demand that they move me to another room immediately. However, my son was out of town this weekend on business. He wouldn't be back until Monday morning, and my daughter was on vacation with her family. My daughter was going to cancel her vacation when I got hurt, but I insisted that they go. It was the first family vacation they had been able to take in years. I was absolutely not going to ruin that for them. I would have felt horrible if they canceled on my account. I had to argue with her a bit, but she finally gave in. So until my son got back on Monday, I was on my own. Unlike my hospital room, the nursing home rooms did not have telephones. And call me old-fashioned, but I never had a cell phone. Once my son got here and saw what the phone situation was, he'd buy me one and give me a crash course on how to use it. But again, until then, I was on my own. Later that afternoon, Maud wheeled herself into my room again. I asked her what she meant when she said that everybody who stays in this room dies. She answered matter-of-factly. Two days before you got here, the woman that was staying here died. What happened to her? Maud shrugged. I don't know. She seemed healthy as a horse. The nurses went in one morning and found her dead. She died in her sleep, 
who else died here? The lady before her? She was just in for rehab like you. Wasn't nothing wrong with her. But she died too. In her sleep. Maud wheeled herself closer. The woman before that one died in her sleep too. I don't pretend to be a doctor, but that seems like an awful lot of people to be dying in their sleep. If you ask me, this room is cursed. I leaned in and spoke discreetly. Was Carrie the roommate of all those women? Maud nodded, yes. That evening I went round and round with the night nurse. She was a real bitch. She wouldn't believe a word I said about Carrie. She told me she could not move me to another room without doctor authorization and that the doctor wouldn't be in until Monday. I asked her if she would check on me regularly through the night and she scoffed. I was helpless, but all I had to do was make it through one more night. The doctor would be in tomorrow and my son would be back from his business trip and would visit me. I planned on staying awake all night to make sure Carrie didn't sneak up on me. After I ate dinner, I noticed that I started to feel extremely groggy. Turns out, Nurse Bitch put a sedative in my food to help me sleep and to keep what she referred to as the ridiculous nightmares about frail Carrie at bay. I was in mid-sentence of hollering at the nasty nurse when I passed out. Again, I woke up to hissing. At first I thought I was having a nightmare about snakes, but when I raised my heavy eyelids, I saw Carrie standing over me. Her face was crinkled into an evil snarl, and she let out a hissing growl. She looked like a rabid beast. Her frosty eyes were enraged, and saliva was dripping down her chin. I'm going to kill you. She reached out, wrapped her skeletal hands around my throat, and started squeezing. I was still groggy from the sedative and couldn't put up much of a fight. I was going to be the next woman to die in this room at the hands of this demented psycho. I flailed my arms around helplessly and managed to slap the lamp off the nightstand. It shattered onto the floor. The sound spooked Carrie, and she scuttled into her bed like some kind of malevolent insect. I was attempting to scream for the nurse when I passed out. The next morning I woke up to the concerned face of my son and the head doctor. My son was livid. He gave every employee in the nursing home a piece of his mind. He insisted that I be transferred to a different facility immediately. The manager of the nursing home and the head doctor were both extremely apologetic and put the transfer through, but said the rehab center they were moving me to wouldn't have a room ready until the following morning. They moved me to room 315, which was at the other end of the building, and my son spent the night in my room to make sure there were no other issues. The next morning, we awoke to a commotion in the nursing home. We weren't quite sure what was going on until Maud wheeled herself into my room and gave me the scoop. Evidently, none of the staff believed me about my terrifying encounters. After they moved me from room 108, 
they moved another woman into that room with Crazy Carrie, and that woman was found dead. According to the staff, she died in her sleep. I'm a divorced woman in my 30s with no kids and no significant other. I recently bought a nice house in a suburban neighborhood. As I stepped out of the house for a brisk jog like I do every morning, I noticed a man standing on the sidewalk across from my house. He was tall and wearing a black trench coat. He had wild, frizzy black hair. His dark eyes were intense and were locked onto me. There was nothing friendly about this man. He looked angry and held a scowl as he stared at me. I cut through the yard to avoid getting close to him and then began jogging down the sidewalk. I checked over my shoulder multiple times to make sure he wasn't entering my yard. He wasn't. He was still standing on the sidewalk but was still watching me. I jogged through the neighborhood for about half an hour and hoped that the strange man would be long gone by the time I got home. When I reached my porch, I looked around thoroughly and was relieved to see no sign of him. Later in the day, I had to make a quick stop at a convenience store. As I stood in one of the aisles, I noticed movement out of the corner of my eye and instinctively turned to look. There he was, the sinister-looking man in the trench coat. He was standing at the other end of the aisle watching me with those fierce, crazed eyes. I hurried to the register to pay for my items. The checkout lady could tell something had spooked me and inquired as to what was wrong. I explained that there was a weird man in the store watching me. She gazed about the store but didn't see anyone. We concluded that he must have hurried away as I approached the register. Later that night, I went to the weekly yoga class that I instruct. After class was over and everyone had left, I turned off all the lights, exited the building, and locked the door. As I turned around to head toward my car, I walked right into the man. His eyes were even crazier up close. They were fixed on me, but at the same time darting around as if he had no control over them. He grabbed me by the upper arms and shook me as he said, Stay away from my house. I jerked away from him and ran toward my car screaming. By this time everyone else was gone and I was all alone in the dimly lit parking lot. When I reached my car I fumbled for my keys and looked up to see the man walking quickly toward me as he held a demented expression of rage. Finally, I was able to calm myself enough to unlock the door and get into my car. The man reached my vehicle just as I started it. He slammed his fist down on the hood of my car as I peeled away. When I got home, I rushed into the house, grabbed the phone, and called 911. I had no idea who this psycho was or why he was following me, but the fact that he knew where I lived sent shivers down my spine. 
At the very least, I wanted the police to come out, check around, and do some extra patrols through the neighborhood. I reached a recording saying that all operators were busy and to please hold. As I waited, I flicked the television set on just to add a little comfort to the room. I nearly dropped the phone when a picture of the lunatic who had been stalking me flashed up on my television screen. The newsman added commentary. We repeat, the man escaped from the Western Hopkins State Mental Institution early this morning. If you see him, call the police immediately. He is considered extremely dangerous. The word dangerous was barely out of the newsman's mouth when a boulder came crashing through my window. I screamed as I saw the crazy man pop his head in through the shattered glass and snarl at me. Get out of my house! Just then the 911 operator answered and I shouted my address to her and told them to hurry. As the man began crawling in through the window, I ran to the front door. I unlocked it and pulled it open, but the security chain kept it from opening fully. I could hear the voice of the lunatic behind me. Get out of my house! I wrestled with the chain and almost had it unfastened as the man grabbed me by the arm. He flung me to the floor and began advancing toward me. With a loud bang, my front door was kicked open and multiple police officers raced in and tackled the man to the ground. They handcuffed him and took him away. Later, I found out that the crazy man lived in my house when he was a young boy and vowed to kill anyone who ever lived there. I sold the house shortly thereafter. If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much. Elf on the Shelf Mom Elf on the Shelf has become a Christmas tradition for many families. It involves a small elf doll. The traditional doll is usually dressed in red, has brown hair, blue eyes, dons a Santa cap, and displays a joyous smile. The story goes that the elf is there to find out if everyone in the house is being naughty, or nice. The fun part of the game is that the elf is supposed to move around when the children are all asleep. So late at night, or early in the morning, the parents will move the elf to a different location in the house. The children then have a good time finding the elf and seeing what it was up to while they were asleep. My husband and I decided we would play the Elf on the Shelf game this year. Our daughter just turned seven years old, the perfect age to appreciate such a fun little game. I had the elf doll on my shopping list for the next day, however when my husband arrived home from work, he surprised me with an elf toy. 
He said it was a rare elf toy from Iceland that a friend of his from work let him have. It looked similar to the traditional elf on the shelf in size and the fact that it had a red outfit and a Santa hat. The difference was that this elf's hair was white and his eyes were frosty blue. It held a smile, but rather than it looking like a happy smile, it came across as more of a mischievous grin. We both thought it would make a nice elf for the game. I was surprised when my husband took the reins and started moving the elf around without me being involved in the process, but I quickly found myself enjoying the mystery of where the elf would wind up next just as much as our daughter was. It started off with the elf simply moving locations. One morning he'd be on the kitchen counter. The next day he'd be sitting in a living room chair watching television. The next day he'd be laying in one of the beds. Once I even found him on the toilet. After about a week, my husband started getting more creative. We wouldn't just find the elf in a new location, but we'd find evidence of the elf having been active. One morning, he was being cradled in the arms of my daughter's favorite doll. Then we found him sitting next to a Jenga tower. Some of the pieces were even sitting next to him as if we interrupted him as he was playing. Another time, he was next to a plate of half-eaten cookies. He even had little crumbs around his mouth. Then there was the time I found him face first in a box of cereal. One time I walked into the kitchen and found a jar of flour knocked on its side. There were little flower footprints that led to the elf sitting on the shelf. And then things took a little bit of a morbid turn. One morning I found the elf sitting next to a knife and the decapitated head of a Santa Claus Christmas ornament. Another day I walked into the kitchen and found the elf standing next to a butter mint dish. The mints had been spilled out over the kitchen table and were placed together to spell out the word die. My husband has a crazy sense of humor so those jokes did make me chuckle, but he was taking a big chance that I would find these before our daughter did. She wouldn't understand the humor and could be frightened by such antics. I planned on having a little chat with the hubby when he got home from work later that night. I had just gotten home from the grocery store and figured I had just enough time to get everything put away before I picked up my daughter from school. When I entered the kitchen, I saw the sugar jar lying on its side on the counter. A substantial amount of sugar had spilled out on the counter and the words, I'm in the bedroom, were written in the sugar. Apparently, my husband had gotten home from work early and was in a frisky mood. Maybe we had enough time to be a little naughty. I walked to the bedroom, turned the knob, pushed the door open, and screamed. Elf on the Shelf Dad When I mentioned to a buddy of mine from work that the wife and I were going to play the Elf on the Shelf game with our daughter this year, he reached into his desk drawer and removed an elf doll. He was dating a gal from Iceland and she gave him this elf as an early Christmas gift. It was called Huldafolk. 
He said he kept it at work because it gave him the creeps. He swore that when he had it in his apartment, he'd wake up the next morning and the elf would be in a different location, and he lived alone. I laughed it off and told him his girlfriend was messing with him. But she doesn't have a key to my apartment. <laughs> Not that you know of. I was happy to take the elf and use it for our game. It had a unique look to it, and I thought my wife and daughter would approve. My wife and I hadn't really planned on what we would do with the elf. I guessed we would just move it around in different locations here and there, and that would be that. But apparently, my wife took it upon herself to run the game on her own and started moving that elf all over the house without letting me in on it. <laughs> that was fine with me. I enjoyed seeing what she would come up with, and... I was surprised at her creativity. At first she was just moving the elf to different locations. The silverware drawer and the freezer were my favorites. Then she got more inventive. One morning I found the elf riding my daughter's toy horse. Once he was standing next to an unraveled roll of toilet paper. The elf in a yoga pose on top of the Christmas tree made me burst out laughing. Then things got a little weird. I found the elf lying next to a few of my daughter's naked dolls. I was surprised my wife would run the risk of our daughter seeing such a sight. Then I found the elf next to a bottle of chocolate syrup. Written on the floor in syrup was the message, I kill naughty people. I have a sick sense of humor, so I thought these were a hoot, but I needed to talk to my wife about being more careful. We wouldn't want our daughter to stumble upon any of these adult jokes. I got off from work early and thought I'd surprise my wife. Turns out the surprise was on me. I don't know how she knew I'd be home early, but I found a message written in sugar on the counter that said, I'm in the bedroom. I smirked. I was definitely up for being naughty. I walked into the bedroom. I could see that my wife was hiding under the covers waiting for me. I started to unfasten my pants as I approached the bed and yanked the covers off of her. I was disappointed to see that the only thing under the blanket was pillows. That's when I felt an incredibly sharp pain in my ankle. I fell to the floor like a sack of wet cement. My ankle was throbbing in pain. When I reached down, I could feel blood spurting against my hand. I then felt the intense agony of multiple stabs in my lower back. Someone was stabbing me, all the while whispering the word, Naughty, over and over. I turned over just in time to see the elf as it slashed through my throat with a kitchen knife. As I lay there watching my blood pool around me, I could hear the front door of the house open and then my wife's footsteps as she walked into the kitchen. The elf must have cut through my vocal cords as I could not speak. I tried to yell out to warn my wife, but it just came out as a soft gargle. I felt my body going cold as the blood drained from me. I could no longer move as my wife opened the bedroom door and screamed upon seeing me. The last thing I saw before I blacked out 
was the mischievous elf driving the knife into my wife's ankle. I knew her fate would be the same as mine. The Monster in the Well There's a monster that lives in the well. It likes to eat children. It's an extremely deep circular well with jagged stone walls which become moss-covered just before disappearing beneath the shimmering opaque water. The well is haphazardly covered with a thin, rickety, rotting piece of flat wood. The well in question is behind an old, rustic farmhouse on the outskirts of a small town. Nobody has resided in the home for years. The well existed before the house ever did, although nobody seems to be sure of the well's origins. Countless children from the town have gone missing over the past century. So many, in fact, that the town folk are never surprised when they hear of yet another child gone without a trace. Most would assume kidnappings or runaways, but the town folk know better. They know the monster in the well is the culprit. It always has been. There's a well-known nursery rhyme that has been sung in the region for as long as anyone can remember. All the children can tell When the monster comes out of its shell It emits a sinister smell When it pulls them in the well Children can run, but they can't hide. The monster will pluck out both their eyes. They will kick and they will cry. They can never say goodbye. An odd nursery rhyme, to be sure. It's not unusual for a foul smell to linger over the town for hours on end. Most people would brush that off as a sewer issue. But legend around the town has it that when the filthy scent fills the air, the monster is on the prowl, looking for children to eat. Outsiders believe this all to be nothing but a legendary hoax that the town thrives on. One thing is for sure. Tourists flock to the town at all times of the year. There are multiple tours available for people to hear about the legend of the monster in the well while catching a glimpse of the well itself. There are numerous gift shops that sell Monster in the Well t-shirts, coffee mugs, coasters, keychains, magnets, you name it. There's even a restaurant in the town called the Monster in the Well Diner. The Well has been featured on many different television shows that focus on urban legends. One show offered a fair amount of money to enter the Well to examine it, study it, and get to the bottom of the legend. 
The town declined, fearing that it would be revealed that the well was nothing more than just a plain old ordinary well. Such a discovery would kill the town's cash cow. However, they couldn't decline closer inspection when a young girl fell down the well not long ago. Children do dumb things sometimes, such as daring each other to dangle their legs over the edge of the well to entice the monster to get them. That's what the young girl was doing when she fell, although some people believe that she didn't fall at all. They believe she was pulled into the well. Many people did their best to save the girl. One brave soul was lowered into the well, which he described as outrageously deep. So deep, in fact, that he couldn't find the bottom. A diver was brought in to dive to the depths of the well to recover the doomed girl's body. The diver never returned. Multiple underwater cameras with magnificent lights were dropped into the well, but at a certain point the water became pure darkness and nothing could be seen. Some assume that there is a running spring under the well and those who go too deep get caught in its current and are whisked away, never to be seen again. They believe that this is the logical explanation for all the missing children over the many, many, years. But I know for a fact that is not the case. The truth is that there is indeed a monster in the well that devours children. I know this because I am that monster. <laughs> by myself in a secluded area. I had been asleep for about an hour when something woke me up. I wasn't sure what it was that stirred me from my slumber, but something was there. I took a quick stroll through my house, which didn't take more than a minute. My house is small, you see. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary until I passed by the front door. It was open, not wide open, quite the contrary. It was almost shut. The latch was undone and was resting against the strike plate. I was almost positive I had shut the door and locked it before I went to bed. I always do. Could I have forgotten? It seemed unlikely. But I did just do a thorough walkthrough of my tiny house and all was well. I shut the door, locked it, used the bathroom, and went back to bed. It was approximately one hour later when I woke up again. My bedroom door was halfway open, enough for me to see that the hallway was being illuminated by the bathroom light. 
but I was sure I had shut the bathroom light off before I went back to the bedroom. Had I forgotten, I definitely would have noticed it was on once I got back into bed. Then again, I was quite tired. It's possible that I was out as soon as my head hit the pillow, not allowing myself to notice that I left that bathroom light on. Still, I was sure I had turned it off. I got out of bed and did another walkthrough of my house. Nothing, so I went back to bed. The next time I woke up, it was definitely due to the sound of footsteps. I could hear someone walking in the other room. Sure, it was possible that it was just the remnant of a dream I may have been having, but it sure sounded like someone was walking around in my house. I got up and checked again. There was positively nobody in the house. All the doors were locked. All the lights were off. I sat down on my bed in the dark and listened. I listened for as long as I could for any signs of someone else being in the house with me. Eventually my eyelids grew heavy and I collapsed onto my bed and succumbed to sleep. A girl was giggling. I wasn't sure if it was an adult woman or a child, but I heard them. Without question I heard them. They were in my living room. I opened my eyes, but I may as well have had them shut for as dark as my house was. All the better for me to hear things. Things in my house. What were they? What was happening in my house while I was asleep? I thought that perhaps if I'd laid there with my eyes shut tight and didn't make a peep, they would believe that I was back in my dream world and would show themselves. So that's what I did. I laid there. Minutes turned to hours, hours to days, days to weeks. Or so it seemed. Nothing. Not a sound. So I slept. I must have slept soundly because when I awoke, my pillows and covers were on the floor. Of course, it is possible that I kicked the covers off and pushed the pillows onto the floor. It's also possible that something came into my room and pulled the covers off of me. It was hoping I would awaken so it could kill me. When I continued to sleep, it grabbed the pillows and threw them in a rage. That could have been what happened. I walked the house again. I was alone, even though I knew I wasn't. It took me a while to doze off the next time. My sleep was short-lived as I heard the coffee maker gurgling in the kitchen. I leapt from my bed, rushed into the kitchen, and finally something was confirmed. The coffee maker was running. Coffee was dripping into the pot. Someone had to have made this coffee, 
and I knew it wasn't me. Then I noticed the coffee had a timer. Wait a minute. Did I make the coffee and set the timer before I went to bed? I couldn't remember and I was starting to feel crazy. So I went back to bed and I slept. During the night I woke up. I tried to lift myself from my bed but I couldn't move my arms. I tried to stand but felt like I was fastened to the bed. This could have been a bad dream, right? Yes. Probably just a bad dream. So I drifted off once again. When I woke up the next time, I kept my eyes closed. I knew the room was bright as my eyelids couldn't block the light. I opened my eyes to a white room. A padded room. I looked down to find myself in a straitjacket. Oh, yes. This is my real life. It was all in my head. I'm never alone in the asylum. Even when I am. My reality is worse than my nightmares. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Please subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen on. We'll see you soon. Very soon.